0: Good morning, church. Good morning. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but we got rid of the white chairs. And we got the rest of the other chairs. So thank you so much. Many of you contributed in helping uh, make sure we got the rest of the chairs in. And uh, so we thank you for that. Uh, Obviously, there's more to come. The parking lot is next. We're just patiently waiting. So thank you for waiting with us. Um, God is good. He provides in so many ways. And so I'm thankful for not just the material things that he's provided this church, but the opportunity to see people in this church grow. As they get together for Bible studies, as they reach out to each other, it's great to be a part of that. And if you're visiting or you're just new to the church, you're not sure about, okay, I really don't feel like I know people, I'm going to encourage you, just introduce yourself to somebody. And if you're part of this church, I'm going to say this, if you see somebody new you haven't seen in a while, introduce yourself to them. There's nothing more awkward than coming to a place you've never been before and trying to, like, get a feel for things like, oh, this is, this is, it's tough. It really is tough. So uh, I want to encourage you to continue to reach out to one another, make each other feel welcome as you worship God together. We're, we're, we're a team here uh, as we worship God and only one God. Amen? You know, uh, a few weeks back, actually it might have been about a month ago now, I might have shared this story with some of you uh, in a situation, a story that I really didn't like at first. See, every year, twi- actually twice a year, all the FCA directors get together from Ohio, Indiana, West Virginia, and Michigan, and we have a regional directors meeting. We usually meet in Cleveland. Well, the last couple of times we've gotten together for usually a three-day stint, we do some kind of team-building thing. And two years ago, we went to a gun range trying to figure out how that fit in with the fellowship of christian athletes but anyway we went to a gun range the next year they went they i think they did horseback riding we did bowling the last time and so i was just sort of curious what are we going to do this time so i emailed the director's administrative assistant assistant just said before i you know pack my stuff to come to cleveland for a couple of days anything i need to bring what are we doing for team bonding night in case i needed to bring a bowling ball or skis or something i don't know And they said, we're going to an escape room. I said, what's an escape room? I've never been to an escape room before. I didn't know what it was. Some of you have. So well, basically, you're locked in a room for about an hour, and you try to get out. And I'm sitting there going, I've got enough problems in my life. Okay? I've got enough issues going on in my own personal life. I've got things I'm trying to always escape from. Don't lock me in a room and tell me, you know, good luck on getting out. I'm I'm picturing all these, like, an insane asylum, you know, and I'm like, People strapped up and screaming at me and just trying to claw my way out of a room, and I was stressed. No kidding. I mean, for the next two days before we left packed to go, I'm just thinking, I, I don't want. There's got to be. There's got to be some kind of excuse I can use to have to leave early that night. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'm coming down with something. You know, what could I use? You know, I, I had nothing. I had nothing. So we went to this escape room after a day of meetings. This is our team bonding, is to go get stressed out. Okay, That's how I pictured it. So we got to this escape room, and if you've been there, you already know what's going to go on. But there was like four or five different rooms in this big building. And we split up according to states. So the state of Ohio, our team, went into this room, and it was called the secret agent room. It was an office, desk, a couple chairs, and things on the wall, and... Various gadgets, filing cabinets, and basically what happens is you're in this room for an hour and you're locked in the room, and they have cameras in every corner that they can monitor from outside the room, and you have to discover clues to discover another clue, to discover another clue to another clue, another clue, another clue, to get you out of the room. So you, one clue, for instance, might be moving a chess piece, a couple of chess pieces, putting them onto a chess board, and then a drawer pops open, more clues in the drawer. And it just continues on. That was what we had to do. Now, going into this room, uh, I was curious. It didn't help that they told us this ahead of time. What's What kind of difficulty rate is this room? They said, oh, you've got the most difficult one. You have a 14% chance of getting out. Now, if some of you dumb and dumber fans, you're like, so I've got a chance, right? You're thinking that, right? Okay. So, yeah, I, hey, we got a chance, 14%. That's, that's all right, okay? It's better than the cabs right now, okay? So my chances of getting out of that room, I'm thinking right now, is not the greatest. So as I'm going around the room trying to find how I can contribute, all these other guys are contributing. Now, there's, there were some positives I learned. It really caused us to work together. All of us worked together. Each of us had various skills that we contributed. But here's, here's the, the negative thing. We We ran out of time. There was a... Uh, like a fake fireplace with three candles on it. There's also next to it on the wall a picture of three candles. One of the clues was taking an infrared light, shining it on the picture, which gave three clues in order for which candle we blow out first, blow the three candles out in the correct order. The chimney pulls away and you get out. We had like five minutes left. We got to that point. We blew them out, like, yes, we pulled away the chimney, which we didn't know because the latch came undone. Like, whoa, pull it, we're out. We all move out, and we were in another room. It was not an escape, okay? It was another room with more clues. We ran out of time. Now, that proved to be <clears throat> a very uh, challenging time. But when we walked out of there, we felt defeated. Now, we had a good time, I have to admit had a good time. All that stress for nothing, okay? And it was very enjoyable, and I thought about this, that our life is very similar to that escape room, in the sense that there are times we are tempted to do something, and we know it's not good. You know what I'm saying? There are pleasurable moments, pleasurable things, things in our lives that we choose to do, and we're tempted to do, but we know that it's probably an act of disobedience to God. So we're tempted to do this pleasurable thing that we know God's not going to be happy about. It might, be, might feel good, but all of a sudden, you know what we find out? We find out those acts of disobedience trap us. And all of a sudden, there's no escape. And suddenly we find ourselves in this little whirlwind of disobeying God. And we're bound to maybe find ourselves in a place we can't get out of. Felt good, looked good, but now we're trapped. That's how I felt about that room. It was fun, but I was trapped. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we'll bring one to you. Just raise your hand. We'll grab one from the back. All right, right there. Can we grab? Uh, where's, where'd Dan go? Well, thanks, Mark. 1 Corinthians. New Testament, past Acts and Romans. You get to 1 Corinthians. Go to chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 12. It says in, starting verse 12, it says this. Paul writes, These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience and god is faithful let's say that together god is faithful he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand when you are tempted he will show you a way out so that you can endure now i want to look at this, this scripture today it's, it's a verse that i've come back to many times over and over. And as I was studying a few couple weeks ago, and I came across this and just like felt, we need to talk about this. Because I think a lot of times in life we find pleasurable things, but we get trapped in them, and we don't know how to get out. And it keeps us from living the way God wants us to live, with that freedom that we need to have. And when you look at this, Paul says, these things happen to them as examples for us. Reflect back to when you were a child, okay? and if you've got some children in here, you can just think currently, okay? But what examples or what lessons did you learn as a child And growing up? If you look back now and say, that was a great lesson I learned when I was a kid, what would that lesson be? Did you learn to respect authority? Did you learn to respect authority because you talked back to authority and you got in trouble and you learned, I don't do that anymore, right? Did you learn to share? Did you learn to work hard? Have you learned to tell the truth? What lessons did you learn as a child? Paul reverts back to Israel's past referring to these things happened saying, hey, let's go back to our past. Remember the things we learned as kids? Actually, let's go back a little bit further. I want to teach you a few lessons. Remind you how God has given us freedom. And despite the freedom God's given us, we still choose to worship things that we shouldn't be worshiping. So first thing he does is, I want to take you back to the time when Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt. So if you were to go back into 1 Corinthians 10, start in verse 1, you'd read a few of these things that Paul references. But one of the things he references is the cloud of God's glory. First thing is, here's the lesson I want you to listen, or I want you to get. God's presence. Say that with me. God's presence. Sometimes we doubt that God is with us, that God cares for us, that he's even around, that he's off sleeping somewhere on vacation. He has no clue what's going on in our lives. And God says, no, no, no. My presence is with you. Go back, as Paul's saying, to the Old Testament, to where they journeyed from Egypt into the Promised Land. And during that time, there was this cloud of God's glory that went with them. During the day, the clouds sheltered them from the brutal desert sun. And during the night, it was a flame, a pillar of fire, constantly reminding the children of Israel, of God's presence. Let me read Exodus 13, 21 to 22. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from the place in front of the temple. The children of Israel always knew this. God's with us. His presence is with us. They learn that as kids. They learn that as adults. And throughout life, they would never forget God is with us. His presence is here. That's a good lesson for us, right? But I got another lesson, Paul says, I want you to remember. How about God's power? God's power. Say that with me. God's power. We have God's presence and God's power that he's re- reminding them about. And in Exodus 14:21, we read this. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea. The Lord opened a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. Remember when Moses is there and the Red Sea parts? So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's army, horses, chariots, charioters, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and the cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. So as the children of Israel go across on that dry seabed, the chariots are following, they get across, God throws the Egyptians into confusion, and then, as you remember the story, he brought the walls of water back down in the Red Sea and destroyed the army. His power was incredible. Not one of us has the ability to walk out to the Maumee River, to any little creek, and say, part. And it opens up like this aisleway. It'll never happen. We don't have that kind of power. Even man-made power, man-made power, can maybe create a dam of some sort and have the water stop. But even if man were to put a wall over here, the creek will run dry, right? How does God take an incredible sea, open up, keep the water on both sides, and make it dry to walk through? Because we all know that a seabed, if you were to walk through once it's opened up, you're going to get stuck in the mud, so to say. God's power is incredible. Paul says, I want to remind you of God's presence and God's power. They came through remarkably, right? And despite, though, the presence and the power of God, despite other spiritual and physical blessings given to the children of Israel, the Israelites in the wilderness, they still continued to have problems trusting God. They rebelled against God. They complained. The displeasure of God with the Israelites was evident because most of them never entered the promised land. Actually, two, right? Joshua and Caleb, right? The spies, remember them? Because they refused to trust God, they went back out in the wilderness and wandered until everybody died off and the new generation came in because of their disobedience, because they didn't trust God's presence or his power. Paul's point hits hard. See, the Corinthian Christians probably taking all kinds of liberties at this time. The people in Corinth were engaged in worldly pleasures. They were doing things that they knew they shouldn't do But the rest of Corinth was doing it. So why not them? And maybe they thought we're safe because of our past spiritual blessings. Oh, we come from a line of people that was God's people. That's our ancestry, so we should be fine, right? Paul warns them to beware. Just as Israel was blessed, had spiritual experiences, no doubt, they still perished. And the same could be said of the Corinthians who were Christians as well. Now there's a few more lessons to learn from the past. Paul pointed to first God's presence and power. Now he points to Israel's failure in the wilderness. Now he says, you guys remember, even after they saw the presence of God and the power of God, that in the wilderness they failed? Exodus chapter 32, 1 to 6 says this. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. "'Come on,' they said. "'Make us some gods who can lead us. "'We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses "'who went up on the mountain. "'He brought us out of the land of Egypt. "'So Aaron said, "'Take the gold rings from your ears "'of your wives and your sons, your daughters. "'Bring them to me.' "'All the people took the gold rings from their ears. "'They brought them to Aaron. "'Aaron took the gold melted it down, "'molded it into the shape of a calf, a cow. And "'When the people saw it, they exclaimed, "'Oh, Israel,' These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early next morning and sacrificed burnt offerings, peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting, drinking, and indulged in pagan revelry. In other words, it was a party that got out of hand. And the main attraction was a golden calf. After God displayed his presence... And as power, they're worshiping a cow. Does that make sense? Not whatsoever, does it? But then again, a lot of things in this world that we do today doesn't make sense. We know about the presence and power of God, but yet we still make choices that people look at us and say, what did you do that for? I think sometimes people look at Christians and they say, I thought you worshiped a God and you trusted a God who's incredibly powerful Always present, but yet you're acting this way? You Christians confuse me. We probably do that at times, don't we? In their idolatry, in their worshiping this calf, they surrendered the temptation to sexual immorality. And we know from reading the Corinthian Christians, they were having problems with this in Corinth too. People went to the temples and basically hired prostitutes And they worshipped through sexual immorality. That town was a mess. Paul sees this and the Christians in that town are looking at it, engaging in it as well, thinking it's okay, right? Paul shares the number of people that died as a result of their rebellious and sinful actions back in that Exodus moment. It almost warns them, like, do we want the same thing to fall upon us? Israel struggled with trusting God. Paul even refers to a moment when they decided to complain instead of giving thanks. Think about this. They are freed from slavery. Now they're wandering around the desert preparing to go into a promised land, but it's a little hard to wait in that traveling mode. I get it. Numbers 21, we read this. The people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. Probably a bunch of people in the back going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Vacation time family, okay? Kids, parents, you understand what's going on here. They began to speak against God and Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt and to, to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to do here. There's nothing to eat or drink. We hate this horrible manna. So the Lord said, fine. He sent poisonous snakes into the camp. Many were bitten. Many died. The people came to Moses now complaining and crying out. We've sinned. They get it now. We blew it. God's blessed us and we whine and complain. Snakes. He says this, or they say this, pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake, attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Which that's another lesson in itself when we look about Christ who was put on the cross. We look to him for our faith. In the Old Testament, we look back to Moses in this situation. This story is a similar thing where they had to put their eyes in the right spot, right? They had to trust God. Well, in response to the complaining of the people, God sent these snakes, right? Their complaining hearts show how self-centered they were, how self-focused they were. Concerned about their their own desires instead of God's glory. And they complained, and they whined. Same thing was going on with the Corinthian Christians. So as Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 10, as he's writing this, he's going, just look what's going on around us right here. Now let let me show you something. The same stuff was happening thousands of years ago. Nothing new. Nothing new. So he's almost drawn in his crowd saying, do you see what's going on right now? It's the same thing that happened back in the day with Moses, who was a great leader, a man of God. So he says, take a reminder from the past. Learn your lessons from the past. Do you think they learned their lessons well, we probably need to remember that God's presence and power is always here. And we probably need to make sure we aren't worshiping other gods or we aren't complaining all the time instead of being thankful for what God's given us. Learn your lessons from the past so that God can be honored today. Because we learn things at an earlier stage in our life, it helps us for adulthood, right? We're without excuses. Even spiritually speaking, Israel was without excuse. As they learn from these mistakes. Now, join me back in 1 Corinthians 10. Everybody there? 1 Corinthians 10? Let's look at verse 12. So we got a reminder. We look back. Now he says, now no, let's, let's go right now to the present. Because people around us are messing up, right? Now, what Paul says can relate to us right now. Because we know it. We, we're sinners. We make mistakes. People around us make mistakes, right? So Paul now says this, verse 12. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. You think you're strong right now? Be careful you don't fall too. For the Corinthian Christians to resist the temptation to be selfish and self-focused, they had to first understand this. They're vulnerable. See, uh, for us as Christians say, we need to know we're vulnerable. Even Superman has his kryptonite, right? We are not... Able to avoid sin. We are not so strong that every little sin that comes along we can like, just sort of pick it away, right? No. Be careful. Be careful. Here's a dangerous phrase. I'll never. You ever use that phrase before? I will never do that. Oh, I, I would I'd never do that. Maybe that's the kind of tone we use, right? That tone can go either way, in in sort of a joking way, like, (laughs) I'll never do that. Or it could be, hey, I'll never do that. However you use that tone, be careful. Or that phrase, I should say, be careful. We'd all like to agree that we would never do certain things. Unfortunately, at some point in time, that which we said we would never do ends up being a temptation for some of us, and it not only goes from temptation, but it goes into a bad choice, and then leads into possibly a lifestyle. And we must be careful. Example, how many of us, when we were in elementary school, wrote those anti-drug posters? Okay, How many of our kids, how many of our youth, how many of our young adults, back in elementary, we were like, just saying no to drugs, don't do drugs. Every single kid in the school did them, right? Posted them everywhere. How many of those, 20 years forward, 15 years forward, are drug-free? Oh, they all said back in second grade, I'll never... But by the time they got to high school, they're like, how about today? Be careful when we say, oh, oh, I'll never do that. We wouldn't have learned in kindergarten to be abusive to people, right? We learned to be kind in kindergarten. We learned to share, right? We learned to not gossip, right, Or, or use abusive language or bullying, but somewhere along the lines, all those things we said, I'll never do, some of us do. If we did today what we did when we were young, and actually covered our eyes, when an inappropriate picture came across the screen or TV, we wouldn't deal with lust and pornography the way we do today. But at some point in time, all of a sudden what became, don't look at that to, well, just a glance, just a look. More than a look. It's like a snowball. It just gets bigger and bigger as it rolls down the mountain, right? For many of us, we say, I'll never, but unfortunately, we partake of it. This is more of a pride statement. And Paul's saying, Be careful, be careful. That's pride in you. If you say, Oh, I'll never, I'll stand strong. You know what? Be careful of your pride. We're all vulnerable to it, we're all capable of falling. Again, he says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Let's go on to verse 13. Verse 13 says this. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Read that again. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. A lot of us believe that my temptation, nobody understands. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Right? I'm going to guess For anybody in this room this morning that is struggling with a particular sin, if you were to step up here and to announce the church, I just want everybody to know that here's a sin I'm struggling with. You probably think think you're alone in doing this. My guess is there's probably another 5, 10, maybe 20 people that are probably struggling with the same thing. If not at this church, other churches as well. You're not alone. But all these temptations that come at me, I'm the only one. No, you're not alone. We often want to excuse our our tempting circumstances as, well, it's, it's very unique. It's a special exception, right? But God reminds us that our temptation is not unique. Many other men and women of God face the same kind of temptations. As you go through the Bible and you read all these things that people dealt with, God put them there for us as reminders like, see, they dealt with this. Look how they did it. They struggled with this temptation. Look how they handled it. Paul just used 10 verses basically to point back to the history of sins common to man. He went all the way back to Moses. He didn't have to go that far, but he did because everybody knew Moses. Complaining, lacking trust in God, sexual immorality, worshiping other things in God. Do those sound familiar today? They dealt with them back then. Same temptations we have today. Let me ask you, church, what temptations are you facing today? See, when you come into worship, we come to God, we want to worship Him, but sometimes it's hard to worship God because we've got things blocking the way. And so sometimes a message like this is a reminder, I need to clean up some things here so I can truly worship God for who He is. Church, what is it that you're that you're struggling with, what temptations, what similar sins. Again, there's no new sin discovered today that hasn't already been addressed in God's Word. If you'd come to me and say, you know, I bet nobody's ever dealt with this before, and there's probably nothing in the Bible that could help me with this. I, you know, we'd, we'd sit there and we'd start laughing, right? It's like, actually, there's probably a lot of examples in here. That's what's so incredible, God's Word deals with everything under the sun. Everything under the sun. Here's the good news, because we like good news, right? There are others before you who have found strength in the Lord to overcome the same temptation and worse. There are others before you and I that have learned how to find forgiveness in God. There are others before us who have found victory in God and our strength through Jesus Christ. So church, the temptations that come our way that are no different than anybody else, guess what? God says, I've got a way out. First of all, how about forgiveness? I want to forgive you for what's going on. Second of all, I want to help you be victorious with what's going on. So instead of us standing up here and saying, hey, I'd never do that. I've got it all together. Maybe we need to show a little brokenness and say, I don't have it all together. And I need God's forgiveness and I need victory in him and I need my brothers and sisters to stand with me because I can't do this alone. That's more of a humbling thing to do, isn't it? Than the pride that he's talking about. There was a little girl who explained that when Satan would come into her life and sort of whisper in her ear a temptation, right? She explained it like this. It's like Satan comes to the door of my heart, and this is what I do. I send Jesus to answer the door. So when Satan knocks on it, Jesus opens it up, and Satan goes, "Sorry, wrong door." Right? Isn't that cool? Again, from the lips of a child. Right? Verse 13 continues on to say this: "And God is faithful. God is faithful." Would you say that with me? God is faithful. Look at the person next to you. Tell them God is faithful. Look to another person. Tell them God is faithful. Now, out of all these verses, this is probably the one we're going to spend the least amount of time talking about. And this is the most powerful one. This is probably the, the crutch of everything right here that God is faithful. He says He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. I'll come back to that God is faithful at the end of the service, but I want to say this. God's promise to basically supervise all temptation that comes at you through the world, through the devil, through the flesh. He promises to limit it according to our capability to handle it, to endure it. And according to our capability as we rely on him, not on ourselves. I don't know if you remember this, but if you remember, Satan wanted to destroy Job. Satan wanted to destroy Peter. And if you were looking back at their stories, you saw that oh, they just, he just wanted to take them out, right? Jesus wouldn't allow it. God wouldn't allow it with Job. See, everybody has to deal with temptations at one time or another. We all do. So you don't need to feel embarrassed the fact that, you know what, I'm dealing with a particular temptation right now. But at the same time, at the same time, you don't have to surrender to that temptation. Yet yeah, we all face it, right? It's a little embarrassing, but you know what? You don't have to surrender to that temptation when it's something that you can overcome. You may not have thought of it before, but I, I believe the devil tries to lure you into sin by working on our mind and our emotions, right? Sort of injects thoughts into our mind, into our emotions that act as stimulants that get you all stirred up in certain areas of your life. And at that moment, you're sort of consciously aware that you can't let that temptation pass you by, or you can allow those thoughts to sort of fester in your mind and take root in your emotions until eventually they become like a major stronghold in your mind and now you got something really big to battle and something to try to conquer. If you would have just refused to accept those thoughts in the first place. We've said many times before, I know the ladies' Bible studies have talked about the mind being a battlefield. Let me put it to you like this. It's like sexual temptation. You can choose to turn and look the other way or you can choose to look and keep looking and dwell on that temptation. And then the next thing is, it takes seed, right? And it goes from looking to staring to thinking to having thoughts that are not godly and letting your imagination sort of move. And if you choose to meditate on that thought, the devil's like sort of keeps putting it back in your head and keeps saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, until all of a sudden you've got this full-waged war against Satan in your mind, trying to have pure thoughts, but you've engaged so long in these impure thoughts that this is just going on in there. Incredible battle, right? We have got to learn to put on the brakes and stop the thoughts, right? As Paul said, take captive those thoughts. If we can keep our mind under the control of the Holy Spirit, it's almost like impossible, but very difficult for the devil to do more with you. I believe he's a master of manipulation. I really do. Um, he knows if he can get you to spend just a little bit of time meditating on the wrong thing, your mind goes that way really quick. Now, I do not believe that the devil sits on your shoulder and that an angel sits over here. That's very cartoonish, right? So when I talk about the temptation that Satan comes our way, I don't want you to think that that's the way it goes. Satan is a created being. He can only be in one place. God is God. He's everywhere. His presence is everywhere. Satan has not worked that way. That's why he had to go out and grab a bunch of other angels to entice them to join him, other created beings, these demons, right? And I was thinking about this and I read this. I want to read this to you. Talking about Satan, that if he can get you to spend a little more time meditating on something wrong, he can eventually entice you to do it. If the devil was persuasive enough to deceive brilliant, mighty, powerful angels, how much more easily can he deceive people who live in a far-from-perfect environment and wrestle daily with their own imperfections? The emotional makeup of human beings makes us susceptible to the devil's masterful skills of lying, deception, and manipulation. So what am I saying in all this? Temptation that comes our way is a tool of the devil. Understand that when you're being tempted, it's a moment for something to come in and to make you think something opposite of the truth. We allow ourselves to think negatively about ourselves. We look in the mirror and we judge ourselves by physical features. Maybe we didn't do well on a test. We say, I'm not a very smart person, and we start knocking ourselves down. Things as simple as that. I'm having a bad day. God must hate me. Those are all false Maybe you woke up in a bad mood or maybe somebody gave you a look that you didn't think you deserved and all of a sudden you're off on the wrong foot for that day, right? And you just sort of allow that to start spinning and the wheels start going. Again, I believe it's moments like that, that negative thinking, those negative thoughts is almost like a temptation from Satan to let you go in a direction that's going to say, today I'm not going to trust God. Today I'm not going to believe truth about who God is and how he loves me and how he's got a plan for me. Because you've allowed yourself to roll down this other path. Verse 13 says this. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. I love this. God's promised not only to limit our temptation, to help us battle temptation, to be victorious against temptation, but He says, I'm providing a way out for you to escape. I'm giving you a way out. He will never force us to use the escape hatch, so to say, but He always points to it. Just think about it. The last time where you know you messed up and you did something wrong, let me ask you this. Was there a moment right before that happened that God showed you a way out, but you sort of ignored it? You're, you, you knew, I probably shouldn't do this. I, I probably shouldn't say this. I probably shouldn't, you know, act on this. You knew it, but yet you did it anyway. Can I tell you something? That was your escape hatch. You missed it. He always provides a way out. Egbosis, that's the Greek word for escape that's used here. It basically means to walk out of a difficult place or a trap, out of a dangerous place, which makes me think back to Joseph when Potiphar's wife was grabbing him. What did he do? He fled, right? He ran. She was trying to get him to sleep with her, enticing him, and he knew this would not be God honoring. So he ran, he fled. All through New Testament, Paul uses the word flee. It's the same Greek word. To run away, to get out of there, to escape. Church, I want to think about this, okay? When temptation comes your way, you have a choice. You can surrender to the temptation, or you can escape and run. Which one are you choosing? Which one are you choosing? Listen, here's the thing. Your feet work in both directions. As quick as your feet can get you into trouble, your feet can get you out of trouble. Which direction are you going? If you know you're going to be tempted to angrily explode, walk out before it happens. If you know you're going to be tempted to get your feelings hurt, go somewhere else to avoid the offense. If you know you're going to be tempted to slip into a state of laziness, then get up and get busy. If you know you're going to be tempted to steal, get as far away from the money or that whatever object is that you want. If you know you're going to be tempted to sexually sin, get out of the situation immediately. If you know you're being tempted to do anything wrong, it's time for us to flee from that temptation. God's given you an escape hatch. Use it. Get out. I was at a ball game the other night, coaching. I was in a dugout. The other coaches were on the on the fence. I was on the fence, hit a ball. We just lost just lost the first game. We were up six to one. It came back in the last next to last inning, tied up, and then they won seven to six. A little frustrated because we should have won, right? Now we're playing game two. We're winning again, six to one or eight, eight to two, or something like that. We were up big. All of a sudden that inning came and they started coming back. We they hit a ball. For a shortstop, he threw him out by half a step. And the umpire goes, safe. I'm going, out by half a step. I could just feel like this game slipping away again. I'm starting to like, I'm, you guys know, if you know me, I'm not explosive, angry, like, okay. But in that moment, I was like, no, we need an out. I came out of the dugout and I said, he was safe. And he looked at me and he was out. I said, can we appeal this? And he goes, Nope, that's my call. And I said, then make a better call. And you know, I was like, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> I literally benched myself. I did. Everybody was up at the bench. I was like, I went to the back of the dugout, and I sat down, and I just, I, I said, I got to bench myself. I gotta, what am I doing? Good job, Pastor Rex. Way to yell at the umpire and say something, right? <laughs> I'm human, right? Okay. And I thought about that later, and it's like, I... I had that moment. And, and in that moment, that time, I could have very easily done something else, right? But as I felt my emotions going and I acted on it, right, and then I realized I had an escape route. I didn't take it. I could have very easily just walked away right away. And you know those moments when you say, did I say that or did I think that? Well, I said it, okay? But to the other coaches, I, and I realized this, to the other coaches, and to the other players, I'm an example to them as well. And I was thinking about times when you're tempted to yield to sin, do we surrender or do we escape? Do we get up and get out of that place? So in that moment, it's like, okay, before I blow it again, or before I say anything else, bench myself. I'm out. Okay, I couldn't completely leave the dugout as a coach, but I knew this, I need to escape from that moment before it gets worse. When temptation comes your way, when somebody offends you or gets you going, you, us, right, we, only want, we are the only ones who can make that choice to jump through the escape hatch. And once you make that decision, your journey to freedom begun, right? So let me ask you this. Today, today, church, is the Lord asking you, are you going to stay the way you are right now? Or are you willing to take the proper steps to escape from an emotional temptation or some kind of demonic trap? Are you willing to take the steps to start fleeing? What's your answer? What are you going to do? Because God's waiting on you to decide if you want that freedom that he's offering. Otherwise, you're trapped, like we were in that escape room. I go back to that, and I think about that, and it's like, you know What? All I wanted to do was get out. But I couldn't get out. I had a 14% chance of getting out. My odds were basically impossible. Right? But here's what I learned in that escape room. Is that there was other people in there. There was a guy by the name of Sean. He had been to an escape room. He knew exactly what to do to get us going. I was so thankful that somebody had been there before. I leaned on Sean. I was like, Sean, what do we do, you know? I went to somebody who had been there before to figure out what to do next. Church, I'm going to tell you right now, there are people in this room that have gone through different temptations and struggles in their life that they have conquered. They are now victorious. You might be struggling with something. There's somebody new who's got a victory story and they can share with you and help you as you try to escape what's going on in your life. But you can't do it alone. And here's the other thing I learned, too. Without God, the odds are impossible. Those cameras in every four corners of the room were watching us. And the people outside, every now and then, they'd ask us if we wanted a clue. We had a total of six clues we were allowed to have. Every uh, eight minutes, they're like, would you like a clue? Yes. Yes, we would. Right? Remind me, it's like God's just sitting there saying, hey, do you want my help? Yes. Yes, God, I want your help. Because this, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. All we've got to do is call on him. All we got to do is ask, right? Worship team, would you come up, please? As they're coming up, I'm going to close going back to a verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is Faithful. How can I stand up here and preach this? How can I stand up here and say, hey, remember the past? Remember all this about God? We're probably in the same situation right now. The temptations that come our way, they come every day, right? And don't have that pride saying, oh, I'm all good. No, because you probably fall too, okay? But understand this when, 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 not if, when temptation comes your way, when it does, God's faithful. He always provides that opportunity for you to escape. Don't keep down that path that's going to get you trapped. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says this, Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is a faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. Mm -hmm. Psalm 89, 8 says this, O Lord God of heaven armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord, You are entirely faithful. We don't get what faithful means. Faithful is a strong commitment to not be abandoned. To say, if I'm going to be there for you, I'm there for you. To say, if I'm showing up at seven, I'm showing up at seven. To say, till death do us part, till death do us part. That's faithfulness. We struggle today in our culture understanding the term faithfulness. So when we say God is faithful, we sort of probably quicker our head a little bit and go, what do you mean he's faithful? It means he's never going to leave you. His promises are true. He says, you got a temptation? I'm there for you. I'll provide the escape route. You trust me. My presence, my power is infinite. I'm here for you. Trust me. I'm faithful. Church, are you leaning on that faithful God today? If you're struggling with anything, if you're battling anything, if you're tempted with something right now, you've got to go to an almighty God who's always present, always powerful, and most of all, faithful, to help you in those moments. Will you go to him? You need to. I need to. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. Faithful, entirely faithful to all generations. From the time of Moses, saying, I will walk with you, my children. My my cloud, my pillar of fire, not leaving you. My power, infinite. I can part a sea, make it dry for you to walk on in seconds. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. And we think, God sometimes that you don't understand the problems we're facing today anger, our selfishness how we use our mouth how we treat people our honesty our integrity we struggle with certain things we think you can't handle it you are God entirely faithful you know what we face and you provide a way out for us But we just have to trust you God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. God, if right now we need to seek forgiveness from you, then we can simply ask for forgiveness. God, if we need a reminder today that you are always present, powerful, and faithful, then let it be. Help us walk out of here with victory. God, we don't have to walk out of here thinking, oh boy, here comes that temptation later today or tonight. No, we can walk out of here knowing you're going to be with us. There's a way out. But we don't have to give into that temptation. God, help us to be victorious and victorious only through your name. We love you, Lord. In that name we pray. Amen.